about the seven factors of enlightenment. And these are seven qualities that the Buddha described that are inherent in each of us and that when fully developed, unbalanced, lead to awakening. And they're also characteristics of the path to awakening. And when we explore and develop them in our practice, it helps to release all the old conditioned habits that you've been working with these past days. There are three arousing qualities. That's investigation and energy and joy. And then there are three calming or balancing, stabilizing qualities. Calm, concentration and equanimity. And the seventh factor is mindfulness. And that balances and links and strengthens all of them. And you can never have too much mindfulness. <laughs> it's it's central to our practice. And in fact <laughs> and in fact Ayakima told me that if you just sit on the cushion without mindfulness, you have a cushion but not a path. And it's that unbiased attention that's mirror like. We experience things just as they are. And there's respect and compassion for whatever we see. And at the same time, it isn't detached or passive. Trumpa says, this awakening is not just throwing away, but having thrown everything away, we begin to feel the living quality of peace, this particular presence. This peace isn't a feeble peace or a presence or a feeble opening, but it has a strong character, an invincible quality, an unshakableness. It has not said no to a single thing. So it's including everything, and it doesn't matter what we pay attention to, all moments are worthy of mindfulness. And it can only happen in the present moment. If you're thinking about the past, that's memory, it's not mindfulness. In the Heart of Buddhist Meditation, it says, Right mindfulness recovers for man the lost pearl of his freedom, snatching it from the jaws of the dragon of time, restoring a freedom that's only to be found in the present. It has a penetrating quality. It's not superficial. The analogy is that when we don't have mindfulness, our attention is kind of like a pumpkin. When it falls on the river, it gets carried away by the past or the future, worries, fears, whatever, and it drifts down the river. Whereas mindfulness is like a stone. It sinks in. It penetrates down and it anchors the mind to the present. And it keeps the object in view, looking very deeply. And by noticing and experiencing just what's there, rather than doing or trying to figure it out, the knots and untangle, the knots and tangles all start to unfold and untangle on their own. And the judging, evaluating and commenting get kind of teased out from what's actually happening. And so we see the truth as it actually is.
Jack talked some nights ago about the four foundations of mindfulness, of breath, body, feelings, mind, mind objects, and you've been practicing with them over these last few days. And more and more, you've had mindful moments. And you've seen how mindfulness protects against the hindrances. In moments of mindfulness, greed and hatred and delusion begin to dissolve. And slowly as your practice grows, the mirror of awareness gets clearer and it's less obstructed by your stories. The first arousing quality is investigation of Ichaya. And that's that interest and curiosity which brings brightness and clarity. It's very alive. When we don't have this quality or it's very weak, things can get dark and confused and heavy and sleepy. And so it's like turning a light on in the dark when you've been bumping into things. All of a sudden you can see what's there, what's been tripping you up. But it isn't analytical or figuring out. It isn't a doing. It's more a willingness to see, just to see, with this kind of investigative curiosity. Become very intimate with each moment, even difficult ones. So when these unpleasant visitors like fear and pain and anxiety arise, we include them rather than shut the door on them. We start to be a little bit curious about what the visitors look like. It isn't easy to look with curiosity sometimes. Yet we find this quality grows with our practice. And the energy generated by it, by this opening with curiosity, rather than closing and contracting, helps us keep going. So this bright light shows the way, it shows the truth, how things actually are, from the very smallest truths to the most profound ones. It's like being willing to walk into the unknown, that kind of don't know mind, letting go of concepts about things and trusting our direct experience. What's actually happening right now? Who is it happening to? Who's hearing these words? Who is it? I was on a retreat some years ago out on walking meditation and I came up to this fence, it was one of those chicken wire fences. I put my hands in it like that and I was looking through and all of a sudden everything the other side of the fence was really clear, it was crystal clear and I was really aware of looking through and I had a sense of being imprisoned and I had this awareness of, oh, what's keeping me in prison from the, oh, out of the clarity? It was my concepts. What's keeping me in prison with my concepts? Oh, I'm holding on. And as I had this awareness of holding on to the fence, very gradually, just watching, my fingers began to release. And I saw what it felt like to release the holding on. It was complete freedom. Just that looking and seeing it unfold. So there's a delight then, often, when we push the edges in this way. Just openness and, for me, delight. It's like going beyond the limits of what I know. 
just pushing the edges of the understanding a bit further. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember those um, plastic domes we, some of us had as kids that were clear, and they had little figures in and white powder. And if you shook them up and put them the other way up, snow was falling. Uh, those things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sometimes I would have the sense that um, you know I was in this vastness, and then all of a sudden it was like being aware. Oh, there's a ceiling. You know, I was looking up in the dome, and there was this whole other world, an awareness of the ceiling opening up, and there's even more vastness. It's like living your life in one of those little things, and then suddenly realizing you've been kept in this by your concepts. So it's, it makes things very workable when we can shine that light of curiosity on them. And with the difficult states, too, um, I knew a woman who had a lot of panic attacks and over the years of her practice she began to be curious about the heart pounding, the difficulty breathing, um, the shaking, the trembling and she was just able to stay and watch the sensations to the point where she didn't have to take medication anymore for her panic attacks. She wasn't fueling them by her fear of them. She was just able to be curious, at first only a tiny bit, but over the months she was able to do that. It really works using our curiosity in this way. But we have to balance it with mindfulness. We can get lost in intellectualizing. That doesn't happen to me. The way mine gets out of <laughs> the way mine gets out of balance is I get too excited about it. I want there's a an element of greed mingled in, where I want to open more doors and see more. And so that's why we need the stabilizing factors to balance these, even though they're really wonderful qualities. The next quality that's arousing is energy or persistence. That quality of resolve, lightness of spirit. On the, before the Buddha's enlightenment, this is what he said. If the end is attainable by human effort, I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin, bones and sinews remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, and human exertion. That may sound a bit drastic for us, (laughs) but you might reflect on it when you're about to go and have tea during a walking period. (laughs) Um, So energy and effort are necessary but we do need to balance them so we don't hurt ourselves by striving nor space out um, with not applying it. Initially, it took a lot of effort for you to get here, for you to come into the moment. It took a lot and you had to keep coming back and coming back. But you all persevered one mindful breath after another, one mindful step after another, gently coming back again and again, that's what you've been doing. You included the sleepiness and the doubt and the restlessness and the boredom. Very gently, you kept coming back. 
as our practice grows, we begin to see the ways that we block the energy and we use it up. Whenever this forcing or striving, it gets really tight and it gets blocked. Energy gets wasted too when we're judging ourselves and we're having all these inner battles. It gets tiring and it's very disheartening. So it helps to recognize the signs in the body. When I'm striving, I start to get a lot of pressure in my head. For some people, it can be tension in their shoulders or their belly. These are the first signs that there's a little bit too much efforting. Sometimes you can notice it and think, am I trying to get somewhere or gain something or do something? And just to remember non-doing and come to stillness. This is from um, the suttas. And it's a story about Venerable Sona. And he was meditating in seclusion and he'd been doing walking meditation until the soles of his feet were cut and bleeding. And this thought arose in his mind. Of all the Blessed One's disciples who have aroused their persistence, I am one. But my mind isn't released. Now my family's got enough wealth. Maybe I should disavow the training, return to the lower life, and enjoy wealth and make merit. (laughs) However, the Blessed One, as soon as he perceived with his amazing awareness the train of thought in Venerable Sona, (laughs) as a strong man might stretch out his bent arm or bend his outstretched hand, he disappeared from where he was on Mount Vulture Peak, and he appeared in the cool wood right before Venerable Sona. And he said, Just now, as you were meditating in seclusion, didn't this train of thought arise for you, that you should disavow the training, (laughs) return to the lower life, and enjoy wealth and make merit? Yes, Lord. (laughs) Now, what do you think, Sona? Before, when you were a house dweller, were you skilled at playing the vena? I think that's a kind of lute. Yes. And when the strings of your vena were too taut, Was your vena in tune and playable? No. And when the strings were too loose, was it in tune and playable? No, Lord. And when the strings were neither too taut nor too loose, but tuned to be right on pitch, was your vena in tune and playable? Yes, Lord. In the same way, Sona, over-aroused persistence leads to restlessness. Overly slack persistence leads to laziness. Attune the pitch and pick up your theme. And so the Venerable Sona does, and shortly after, he reaches the supreme goal. The birth is ended, the holy life is fulfilled, the task is done. And he became an arahat. I wish it was so easy. So, we do need to find balance in this way. And for each of us, it's mindfulness that helps whether we need to focus in a little bit and put a little bit more effort to coming back, or whether we need to relax and open up and be at ease. Pushing things away and denying them blocks the energy as well. For example, with fear, you can expend energy trying to hold it off. But if you let it expand as it will and let it have its own life, 
it will depart. And then you have all the energy that you would have used to hold down the fear, plus the energy of the fear itself. So this kind of courageous energy sustains and builds in our practice. And when we can approach ourselves with compassion and gentleness rather than judging, we can find an infinite store of energy. Another important aspect of energy and effort is continuity, which we were talking about um, yesterday, I think. Continuity means paying attention to all the times in between the sitting and the walking. Often we lose it when we get up from a sitting. And so you might be curious about when is it for you that you lose the mindfulness? When does your attention go? When you get up from the talk tonight, see when it is that you lose it. Or when you're starting your walking or ending the walking, when is it that it goes? Not this in a sort of hard forcing way where you think, oh, I've got to be mindful every minute. But much more in a gentle way to keep coming back. And when we can have this kind of gentle persistence and continuity, it reinforces our ability to be awake and to be present, and our concentration naturally deepens. Working with energy, to me, is like learning to ski. At first, it takes a lot of effort to learn to turn. Any of you have downhill skis? It takes a lot of effort to learn to turn. And gradually, you build the confidence and the trust so that you let gravity do all the work, and you can just flow down the slopes. And then there's joy, which is the next arousing factor. It's that sense of wonder and delight, that gladness and joy in just being. In just being alive, just as the Buddha, when he was under the rose apple tree, had that sense of just being alive, of being present. But sometimes in our life and in our practice, we lose that experience of joy. It can get serious and grim and tight and mean in our sittings and feel very controlled and trying. Sometimes when we're inundated with suffering, we close down, it's natural. But when we do that, we close off to the joy too. And it takes courage to open to both of them. Sometimes we take ourselves so seriously and joy brings that lightness and ease where we can receive every kind of experience with interest. It's a crucial part of our practice. Can't get to freedom without going through the doors of joy. Ayakima teaches bring joy to the pillow. And she instructed people to um, think of something you have gratitude for at the beginning of every sitting as a way of opening the heart and experiencing joy. And I know, you know, sometimes I would find um, there isn't one iota of joy present. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, I do not feel gratitude for a single thing. You know, we've all have moments like that, you know, when there's this cloud there. And you can't force it. It doesn't come from having an agenda. Just like you can't repeat a wonderful meal. You know, you go back to the same place and it's not the same. You can't force it. It comes from these moments of surrender. It's like grace. And it's very simple. 
Often we miss our pleasant moments when we're caught up in our stories. Um, someone I knew had a lot of pain. Um, she was on a long retreat and she was having a lot of pain, physical pain, emotional pain, back pain, and was getting very weighted down by it. And one day she was out on a walk and she just happened to stop and look at the flowers in the hedgerow. This was in Europe. And in that moment, she saw the flowers just as they were. It was very simple. She just experienced the beauty, the colors, the textures and the smell of the flowers and the sounds in the air of the insects. And it was though she'd been walking down that same lane every day and suddenly she'd seen it. It was very simple. She realized that there were moments of joy even in the midst of her pain. And it's different from pleasure that comes from satisfying desire. It's that kind of unity of heart and mind and body when everything comes together and we're right in the moment. Martha Graham says, make each moment in movement vital and worth living. Do not let it slip away unnoticed and unused. When we step out of our small contracted sense of self, there's an expansion and a freedom that comes from having a larger perspective. And the energy that's released from all that holding often is joyous, as a relief. However, comparing mind can kill joy. Envy does too. It's like when you see someone sitting and they look so blissful and or unpeaceful and why can't I be like that? You know? um, and it kills the possibility of joy. The Dalai Lama said, it only makes sense to take great delight in the happiness of others. There's so many of them. You increase your chances of happiness six billion to one. <laughs> it's very good odds. <laughs> so we're opening to that connectedness where we're moving from that small sense of self which says there isn't enough for me to that sense of interconnectedness where there's enough joy and we're part of that. And that's inspiring. We, can, we get that connection with the Buddha in each of us. Realizing the truth and your own di- direct experience of the Dharma also brings joy. And as our mindfulness and investigation and concentration build, um, the joy does. Sometimes joy can be very strong and rapturous. It's called raptures. And there's extreme well-being, very pleasant states. Physical sensations feel wonderful. And we have these kind of altered states. And it's easy to get attached to those states and think this is it. But they're states and they're not permanent. And if we try and come back and reproduce them, how did I get here? What did I do? Um, It doesn't work. And if we hold on to them, it doesn't work. So they ought to be appreciated and to really fully open to, but just not to be held on to. So when joy fills the awareness and fills the body, becomes at ease, 
and the mind becomes calm. Sometimes, however, the joy and energy get too strong and there's an agitated energy. I know that one well. Um, And so it does need to be balanced with stabilizing factors and with mindfulness. So the first of the stabilizing qualities is tranquility or calm. And it's not an easy one for us in the West because we're so much doing. It's really hard to stop doing because we're trained to do. It's very difficult to simply be still. Even in our sitting practice, we're trying to get it right. And there are subtle elements of striving and judging. And there's a sort of anxiety that comes with that, which isn't really calming. But we do have the capacity, just like with joy, where we can miss the moments and not realize they're there underneath. Often we miss the moments of calm that are already there. They just get covered up with the striving. Thich has the image of a glass of um, that kind of um, organic apple juice that's cloudy. And if you let it just sit and you don't do anything to it, gradually all the sediment settles and it becomes really clear. And so that's that quality of calm, that stillness, when we can see really clearly. This kind of retreat fosters the qualities by removing a lot of the stimuli from our outside environment. Upandita describes the kind of posture and clothing and food that help um, generate calmness. And he also says we need to be neither over-enthusiastic nor sloppy and avoid disturbing people. And then incline the mind towards peace. So it's inclining the mind really helps. And we do that by taking a posture that's still. There's a reason that we encourage people not to move. That stillness fosters it. There's the calmness of the breath when we're aware of the breathing. When we're aware of sounds just coming and going. It's like coming and being at ease. It sort of releases the burden of the past and refrains from leaning into the future so that we're just staying stationary in this moment. And then we can begin to be content with each moment, just as we, um, just with things as the way they are. Some of you, many of you may know this from Ajahn Chah. Be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quiet in any surrounding. It will become still like a clear forest pool and all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink from it. Then you will clearly see the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So here in our practice, it's like being at rest in an easy chair in a house. You know, I have this image of a, of a house and you're in the middle of the house with doors and windows open and you're just resting in this easy chair and visitors come and visitors go, but you're just letting them come and go and do whatever they do. And it's that sense of ease. 
just settling back, not running after them or chasing them, but just letting them be, not going to the door to see who's coming next, just staying and resting. John Kabat-Zinn um, has this image of a lake, and you have a sense of yourself as the lake, and the surface of the water can be frothing and choppy or, or stormy, but deep underneath there's this stillness. And even if the lake is frozen completely over the top, there's still life underneath. And so amidst any kind of weather, you can connect with that sense of a lake or calmness in yourself. There was a woman in one of the mindfulness courses that I taught um, who had a lot of trauma and difficulty in her life. And we did a full day um, retreat. And she said, the most amazing thing happened. The pain, the fear, the sadness, all came. And I felt them all. And yet there was this calm underneath everything. And I'm actually feeling quite content now. So she had been through the entire range of things, but she connected with that calm underneath seeing everything. Sometimes we can see that just outside the borders of our agitation or or our intensity, there's a peace, there's more peace than we realize, and that we can relax into that wider spaciousness that can hold it all. Sometimes we might be aware that there's a little bit of calm in the gap between thoughts, and we can incline the mind and transfer our attention to the calm, away from the thoughts and the stories. And with this tranquility, we can respond more intuitively and more clearly to our inner and outer world. And continuity helps in the developing of calm. The next stabilizing factor is concentration, or samadhi. And that's this ability to collect our attention and energy and direct it into the present moment. It collects the mind together and permits wisdom to arise. And it brings a stillness so that we can see clearly in that space. Often at the beginning of a retreat, we can get really dismayed because we feel there's so little concentration and our mind is just wandering and wandering. And we feel, I can't concentrate. But all of us have the capability to do that. It's true that concentration comes easier to some people than others. I think it's a physiological thing. It's just easier for some people to focus and still the mind. But we are all capable of it. Kids can have great concentration on Nintendo. However, when the game stops, they're in this altered state that's not particularly useful. (laughs) You know, it's sort of gaga concentration. Um, And there's a zone out. I like to think of it as cow consciousness. So it's the object of our concentration and our attitude to it that's really important. Because some forms of concentration just aren't beneficial. 
And if we use the concentration to escape from reality, that's not useful either. Ajahn Chah said, if you're sitting just to get concentrated so you can feel happy and pleasant, you're wasting your time. It's like taking a stone and covering up a smelly garbage pit. When you take the stone away, it's still full of smelly garbage. So you must use your concentration not to temporarily bliss out, but to accurately examine the nature of the mind and body. This is what actually frees you. There are many ways of concentrating the mind, but the underlying intention is to cultivate this undivided, undistracted attention. And two of the main types that we've been working with here, the first is this kind of continuous one-pointed samadhi, where we're focusing on a single fixed object to begin with, which is the breath. could be the body, or it could be a sound, or the loving-kindness meditation where we're focusing on the phrases. And what we do is we come into the present moment and the mind begins to calm down and lose its addiction to busyness and fantasy. And it's not anti-thought. We're not trying to get rid of thought. It actually enhances our ability to apply thought creatively and appropriately. And we don't want to add to the resistance by trying to suppress it by willpower or forcing. So we begin with that sense of easy chair, of relaxing and spaciousness, and of balancing the effort. First of all, we apply the attention and then we connect it to the object. So if it's the breath, we connect to the breath. If it's the phrases of loving-kindness, then we really connect to them. And we sustain the connection there. Sort of like a hummingbird coming to a flower. It sustains the attention on the flower. But it doesn't poke its beak through the flower. No, it doesn't force it. It just stays there with this gentle coming back over and over. Focusing in without striving. So that's what we do. We sustain the attention there. And when we do that, the mind naturally starts to slow down and clarity emerges. Like the apple juice, it starts to settle down. We, we sustain, at first we sustain just with one in-breath and then just with one out-breath. Wander off, come back over and over with patience and kindness. If you just keep showing up, it develops. But the sustaining and continuity are what's important. It's like putting a, the, the analogy is of putting a pot to boil. If you keep taking it off the, the burner or the stove, it isn't going to boil. But if you leave it there, if it sustains its contact with the element, it will boil. But it does it in its own time. And concentration happens and deepens in its own time. There isn't any agenda. And if we keep taking the lid off to look and see is it boiling yet, it doesn't make it happen any faster. So sometimes you can sit, you can be sitting and you can feel like nothing's happening. You're having a few mindful moments, but you're not really concentrated. You think, you know, I'm doing, nothing's happening. And then you'll come in and sit down or maybe you'll be standing in the line 
And all of a sudden, this concentration is there, like grace, it just comes. But it didn't come out of nowhere, it came out of your effort of coming back over and over. So we do it without knowing and having an agenda of trying to make it happen, but just of being willing to be present. So it's like strengthening a muscle. The ability to stay present and in the moment gets stronger with time. If we don't use quite enough energy, the muscle is kind of flabby. And if we overuse it, it hurts. And we get tight and uncomfortable. The kind of concentration that we use in Vipassana is momentary concentration, where we're observing many different objects and we intentionally direct our attention to and connect with whatever is predominant, whether it's a sound or a sensation or a thought or an emotion. And sometimes we use simple mental notes to aid in connecting. And they're just an aid. If you're connected and your attention is steady, you don't need to use the mental noting. But for many of us, it's, like, it's kind of like training wheels on a bicycle. When, once your concentration and your, your mindfulness are really present and, and flowing, you, 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 the noting kind of falls away. And we see that objects are arising and passing and changing all the time. And as our attention deepens, the thoughts start to slow down and clarity emerges. And we're aware of thinking, we're aware of the beginnings, we're aware of the endings, and there's a very calm and clear attentiveness. And with practice, we begin to find that we can develop concentration in any kind of mental mind state or with any activity, whether there's restlessness or doubt or confusion. We simply make that the object of our attention and sustain the attention there. And it's amazing how workable difficult states can become when we gently but firmly sustain the attention there. Sometimes there can be a lot of doubt or confusion or there's too many thoughts and you feel like it's just not possible. And that's when it helps to use mindfulness to know whether we need to make a wider lens. It's like having a map, you know, having a, a wide angle lens so that we make more spaciousness. Or if things are getting contracted, um, that's what we need. If we're spacing out, we might need to bring the, bring the focus in a little bit. And we get to see how to do that um, with our practice. And we slowly develop a greater stability and a clearer understanding. Sometimes people think that they can only have insights if it's a very deep kind of concentrated state. But that's not true. Insights can come when we're staying with each moment and our mindfulness is present, but we're not extremely concentrated. It's easy to get attached to these very deeply concentrated states because they're very pleasant often. They can be blissful and there's energy releases and the body feels very pleasant. But we have to remember what Ajahn Chah said. We're here to uh, free ourselves from the garbage. And so to notice when you're getting attached and to um, 
to release it. The third of the stabilizing factors is equanimity, which is that balance or evenness of mind. It's being able to be with whatever is happening without getting lost in reactivity or numbing out or despairing. Not taking it personally. Shinzen Young calls it radical acceptance of what is. But it isn't passive or numb. It's fully connected with understanding. So there's openness and clarity and connectedness. It's not open, clear, and removed. That's cow consciousness again. It's that connectedness so that we can see when and how to act, what right action will be. So it's skillful acceptance, wise, clear seeing, that we can't change or control things despite our wishes. Things simply are the way they are. There's a natural unfolding to life, and there's always going to be pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. I've spent a lot of my life trying to resist how things are and wanting there to be only pleasure and gain and praise and fame, not wanting to accept that the others exist. But that leads to a lot of anxiety and suffering if you're always trying to control it so that you keep those things happening. A very simple example from my own life is I spent many years going to medical conferences and at some point during the day there's these um, sessions where you have about eight options to choose from. And I always get into a terrible state, I used to, about choosing the right one. So I go to one and after five minutes, this is really boring, I should go to such and such. So then I leave and I go to this one, oh I should have stayed. And then I meet one of my friends afterwards, oh you should have gone to that one, that was so great. <laughs> and I don't learn a thing because, <laughs> because I've spent so much time trying to find the right one. And so it's been a really good practice for me to go to one and stay there and to sit with the wanting it to be the way I want it to be. Um, and it's wonderful to allow all that to happen and see how much peace there is from not trying to control it and not trying to get it right. And I actually enjoy the conferences a lot more. you know. And I can handle hearing my friends say, oh, you should have gone to that one. Um, so it's being able to allow it the way it is. When we, with equanimity then, we can learn to let things be, to be enough. One moment at a time, this moment is enough. This moment that I'm listening to is enough. When we're sitting there leaning into something else, we miss that this moment is enough. Whether it's an easy moment or a difficult moment, it's enough. Michelle MacDonald once said in one of her talks that when she gets up in the morning, she says, may whatever I receive today be enough. So may whatever I receive in each moment be enough. And there's such a relief when we don't need it to be more or different.
The Buddha said, freedom is being without anxiety about non-perfection. Whether it's non-perfection of the situation or non-perfection of ourselves. So with equanimity, the heart can open whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And gradually we begin to build, and you have been doing these days, a greater tolerance for the difficult, unpleasant states. And there's more of a sense of spaciousness. There's another analogy the Buddha uses that I like. It's that if you have a cup of water and you put salt in it, it tastes very salty. If you put that same quantity of salt in a river or an ocean, it doesn't taste salty. The river can handle the salt. And so when we make that kind of spaciousness, it's possible to handle and to be with difficult situations. Not having to contain it all. Not having to close down. It's like having a wide open sky where things pass through. And you see them clearly as they go, but you're not holding on to them. They come and they go. I like to think of it as Teflon mind. You know, it doesn't get stuck as it goes through. So through our practice, equanimity grows and we begin to be able to release and let be. And it happens on its own. Old concepts get loosened and we see through our own direct experience how things actually are. Through sitting through a boring medical lecture, I got to see, oh, this is how it is to allow it to be the way it is. And there was a peace in that when we can release them and allow them to be the way they are. There's compassion and wisdom that come from that. And we see that the truth is the same for everyone, that we're all deeply connected. And from this very deep place of connection, the right action can arise. So we've looked at these seven qualities. And we've talked about using mindfulness to bring them to balance. And you can also use them to balance and combat the hindrances. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. Monks, on occasions when the mind is sluggish, that is the wrong time to develop serenity as a factor of awakening. That's calm. Concentration or equanimity. Why? The sluggish mind is hard to raise up by those mental qualities. Just as if a man wanting to make a small fire blaze up were to place wet grass in it, wet cow dung, wet sticks, give it a spray of water and smother it with dust. So when the mind is sluggish, it's the right time to develop investigation, persistence and joy as factors of awakening because the sluggish mind is easy to raise up, just as if a man wanting to make a fire blaze were to place dry cow grass and dry cow dung and dry sticks. So when the mind's restless, that's the wrong time to develop investigation and persistence and joy. Because with those mental qualities, with a restless mind, 
if a man wants to put out a fire and he puts dry grass and dry cow dung and dry sticks, it doesn't work. So when the mind's restless and so forth, you need wet cow dung (laughs) and wet grass. So over the next few days, your task is to decide when you need the wet cow dung (laughs) and wet grass. And as you go out, to the left is the wet cow dung. (laughs) The right is the dry cow dung. But (laughs) seriously, um, over the next few days, maybe take a sitting and just, when or a walking, and notice when you're fairly attentive um, and your mind is reasonably still, what of the seven factors are present. What's a little weak and could do with strengthening? What's a little too intense and could do with balancing? Do you need wet or dry cow dung? And as much as possible, without judging or evaluating, more with curiosity, see if you can change the balance without doing, but just by using mindfulness. Very often, just having the mindfulness to see what it is that's out of balance will bring it into balance again. All these factors are inherent for all of us, and yet you can't make them happen. They arise as fruits of the practice, all on their own. We don't have to grasp for them or reach for them. All we have to do is show up and provide the conditions just our sincere intention and our motivation to be present with kindness, with patience, over and over, to be aware of what blocks them and of what feeds them and enhances them. And as we bring these qualities to full development, the mind becomes shining and it naturally becomes clear and full of joy and peacefulness and freedom. And we do begin to see clearly how to live our lives with greater harmony, what it is that we need to do and how to act in the world. So I'd like to finish with this poem um, by Pablo Neruda. It's called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to twelve and we will keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would be all together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. The man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, with victory but no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it's about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness 
of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I will count to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.